Welcome to Savage Minds. I'm your host, Julian Vigo. Today's guest is Paul Embury, a firefighter, trade union activist, pro-Brexit campaigner, and blue labor thinker. In his new book, Despised, Why the Modern Left Loathed the Working Class, Embry draws on his background as a firefighter and trade unionist from Dagenham, arguing that this disconnect between the left and the working class has been inevitable since the left political establishment swallowed a poisonous brew of economic and social liberalism. I have recently read this book, and I'm happy to welcome Paul to the show. Welcome to Savage Minds. First, can you tell our listeners a bit of background about who you are and your relationship to the left, the Labour Party and labour unions? I've been involved in the labour movement in Britain for for around 26 years. Um, I've been a member of the Labour Party for all of that time. I've been an active trade unionist for much of that time. Um, I uh, served on the national executive of one trade union, the Fire Brigades Union, which I've been a, a member of for uh, uh, around 23 years now. Um, and I've uh, I've a passionate believer in the in the principles of what the left historically has tried to achieve. I'm a democratic socialist. Um, I believe that uh, you know the the interests of ordinary working class people have been historically best advanced through the vehicle of the Labour Party in conjunction with their partners in the trade union movement. Um, I don't believe in an unfettered market. Equally, I don't particularly believe in an overbearing state. Um, I believe fundamentally in a fairer economy, redistribution of wealth, strong public services, etc. Um, but I also believe in the cultural politics of, of place and community and belonging. Um, these things that have been disrupted violently by globalization and its impact in working class communities. And I've experienced from my vantage point in the labor movement over recent years, a chasm opening up between traditional working class communities and the wider left in this country. Uh, I think as the left has increasingly embraced a kind of cosmopolitan liberalism and concepts such as open borders and personal autonomy and identity politics, um, so that chasm has just grown wider. And the values now between traditional working class communities and the wider left have, have almost completely diverged. And we saw the impact of that at the general election in December last year, where the Labour Party, which tribally many working class communities had, had supported throughout their existence, um, suddenly decided not to support the Labour Party anymore and to support the Conservative Party. So that has to be a massive wake up call for the left and for the Labour Party in particular. The, the Labour Party at the moment in Britain is flirting with irrelevance because it has become so out of sync with the values of working class communities. And I agitate in the movement for, for the left to reconnect with those working class communities communities, but that's going to take a fundamentally different approach in terms of language and priorities over the next few years. In your book, Despise, Why the Modern Left Loathes the Working Class, you analyze the schism between the British left and working class voters. One of the conclusions you draw is that the British left tends towards authoritarianism. This is something I've noticed across uh, many Anglophone countries from the UK to the US, Canada, Australia, where there's been a complete abandon of historical materialism, any kind of class analysis that 
would have it clearly defined as to what working class means, because the rights of the working class, the voice of the working class has been supplanted by identity politics. And you discuss this very clearly in your book. You make an argument against identity politics, and you've even suffered because of this. Um, your, your, your book has been critiqued by many of the identitarians on the left, and they who have a habit of shutting down legitimate debate by just dismissing their opponents as, as you state in a recent piece for Unheard, uh, they, they shout you down as, you know, fascist, xenophobes, racist, and such like. Um, indeed, your book has raised really serious and critical concerns that many of us on the left, what I like to call the not woke left, um, are, are in agreement. So when I, you know, read your book, I felt really heartened to see someone who's still got a sense of not only working class concerns, but an ability to cogently analyze situations based on reality. Can you speak to what drove you to write your book and some of the critiques you have about the authoritarianism that has crisscrossed all sorts of debates from Brexit, to identity politics within the Labour Party, even Corbyn's own, uh, you know, many people say he's been foisted by his own petard with the recent cancellation from the Labour Party due to anti-Semitism, etc. Yeah, I mean, the book came about really because I identified what I think was a serious problem on the left and, and a real schism uh, emerging between traditional working class communities and, and the wider left and the Labour Party. Um, because the the values between the two groups um, seem to be diverging quite seriously. And the Labour Party increasingly over the years was becoming largely a party of, of social activists and middle class liberals living in the fashionable cities and students and you know the, the professional and managerial classes. And it's always had that element in the party and it's always been the better for them being there but it had always been a historical coalition between that group of people and if you like more traditional working class blue collar um, people um, who had been the, the the mainstay of the party really um, but nowadays it's the former element the kind of middle class social activists who who are absolutely dominant in the party and the blue collar working class element, which has been largely elbowed out. And as that demographic change has taken place in the party, uh, so the priorities of the party have changed from being the priorities of ordinary working class people and the things that stress them in their everyday lives and the issues that they want to talk about um, to, to more middle class concerns, you know, around identity politics and, and, you know, causes that many people would regard as secondary causes, but which often obsess the, you know, left wing middle class types. And you know, working class communities saw this and I saw it happening. I saw it happening in my own community uh, in Barking and Dagenham in East London, where I grew up. Um, that increasingly the left and the Labour Party were not speaking about the concerns of ordinary working class people, but worse, would obviously dismiss those concerns as being driven by, you know, racism or xenophobia or, or bigotry. Uh, and that, that attitude, that approach... Um, has really created that schism. The, the, the left thought that the working class had nowhere else to go uh, and would never vote conservative or not in enough numbers 
to be able to, to bring the Conservatives uh, the sort of victory that they got at the last election. Um, but the truth is they did. The truth is that the left pushed the patience of working class people so far in this country that in the end they, they revolted. And because of that, the left is now, is now standing almost irrelevant on the sidelines and needs to do a heck of a lot of work to, 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 to win back the affections of those communities. If you could explain to those who might not be familiar with how new labor has impacted this, because, you know, now the crown has been covering Thatcher, right? <laughs> so Americans are actually going to get this kind of um, romanticized, because it's, it's quite interesting nonetheless, but romanticized vision of Thatcher, who herself was credited with having crippled much of the industrial North working class jobs. How how did labor, new labor under Blair, contribute to this problem of, of basically labor's divorce from working class Well, uh, new labor broadly accepted Thatcherite economic dogma that um, there wasn't really a place for government intervention in the economy. We should roll back the frontiers of the state. We should hand most things over to the to the private sector. Uh, we should hand monetary policy over to, to bankers at the Bank of England. Um, and that combined with a very relaxed approach to the effects of globalization. So for example, in the early decade, the first decade of this century, we started to see in working class communities a very significant uh, effects of globalization in terms of deindustrialization and blue collar industries and factories closing down and jobs being shipped abroad. Um, the rise of precarious transient employment at the same time as that was happening, we saw uh, rapid, rapid demographic change in communities as a result of a, a much more liberal uh, immigration policy and the impact of free movement laws in the EU, which is starting to really take hold. Um, and all of this left working class communities feeling very disorientated and bewildered. And when they looked to their traditional representatives in the labor movement to, to come to their aid, they they found that often those representatives um, had, had embraced the change and were promoting the change and, and thought that they should embrace it too. They lectured them about, you know, cultural enrichment and how this was going to bring improved gross domestic product, GDP and all of that kind of thing. Uh, and actually working class people looked and thought, well, this is not really benefiting me very much at all. I don't seem to be much better off financially. I don't seem to be much better off in terms of, you know, my sense of place and belonging. Um, and it caused a huge rupture between the, the Labour Party and these communities. Many of them started to abstain in elections. Some of them went to right-wing parties like uh, UKIP and the, and the BNP. Um, and since, that, since those changes took place in a very profound way in that first decade of, of this century, um, Labour has increasingly been hemorrhaging the votes of people in these communities. And the, you know, we saw exactly where that ended up with the, the election last December, with Labour now uh, a complete irrelevance in many of these communities, which once had been its bread and butter, which once had been the backbone of, of, of the Labour Party. Uh, and it's only got itself to blame because its, it's ideological approach uh, has, has for years now driven these people away. Um, and it's going to take an awful lot of work to win them back. You yourself have been accused of being nostalgic about the Labour Party. While in our lifetime, we have seen the party shift vastly to the right. 
what has happened to the Labour Party in the UK and what parallels to some extent to what's happening with other left-leaning parties in countries across the English-speaking world. For instance, the disappearance of Labour unions in the US, the Gilets jaunes in France, have been co-opted by an elite class that has zero consciousness of what labor means, what working class means. And this, this elite class within the left has no relationship to the working class, yet they are running the show. I was wondering if you might speak to this, both how this affects the discussion within England uh, and in the UK, and how the problems of the working class are exacerbated by this disconnect between the Labour Party and the working class. Many working class people, and this, this goes back to the chasm that's opened up between the left and the working class, the, the, many activists on the left now genuinely see working class people uh, almost as if they're some sort of embarrassing elderly relative. You know, they've got they've got reactionary views and we don't particularly want to be seen in public with them. You know, we need to, we need to keep them on board because we need their votes at election time, but we don't really like them and we don't really like what they stand for. And they're set in the dark ages and, and, you know, they're, they're socially conservative in some respects. Um, And, and so, you know, the, the truth is that working class people are not stupid and they know, they know when they're being, they're being treated in that way and when their views are being dismissed in that way. And there's been two occasions in the last four years uh, in Britain where, they've, they've re- where this particular group of people, which has been derided and scorned and mocked by the political establishment, not just the left establishment, but, you know, liberal progressives across the political spectrum in this country, including some on the right. There were two chances they had to, to hit back at those who they felt had, had let them down. And they did that on the first occasion with Brexit, which I think was a, a genuine democratic revolt in this country where many people voted for the first time because they, they knew they'd been suddenly handed a weapon with which they could really hit back at the political elite who they saw as being responsible for their, for their predicament. Um, and, the second was the the general election um, last December, where where people, working class people, who for years and communities, constituencies, which for years had voted Labour, um, gave the Labour Party an absolute kicking. Uh, and you know some of the some of the constituencies that went conservative. If you'd have said just a few years ago that that these traditional working class places, which had voted Labour all of their existence, you know, since the 1920s and 30s in some cases had constantly returned Labour MPs at elections. Um, and some of these places voted Conservative, which, you know, traditionally the, they, it was the party they saw as their enemy. And they did it because they were so betrayed and let down by the Labour Party and its attitude towards them and its attempts to overturn the Brexit vote um, and the way it would, it would, you know, regard them, as I said, as some sort of embarrassing elderly relative. Um, and they kicked back and they kicked back very hard. And now I still don't think that large parts of the left have got it. Um, I think that people, many people in the Labour Party think, oh, it was, you know, it was just a, a Brexit vote last December, you know, because of our position on Brexit. Um, but, you know, once that issue is done, all these places will come flocking back to us. I think that's very naive. I think that the old tribalisms are breaking down in this country. Uh, I think that it's been it's been something that's been brewing for many, many years. It didn't begin and end with Brexit. 
Um, and unless the Labour Party can learn to win back the affections of these communities and to fall in love with them again and to, to understand their concerns and to, 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 to put them front and centre of their own programme, um, then they're finished. They are finished in these communities and they'll have no one to blame but themselves. <laughs> We're seeing now uh, the fallout from some of these identitarian organisations and how they're fragmenting communities. A report just came out last week that Black Lives Matter has actually created more problems than it solved. I don't know if you read that. Mm. And there's um, a lot of critique within the communities that um, ostensibly are said to be backing Black Lives Matter. Uh, the likes of Adolf Reed from the US, he has long criticized the managerialism within the left and within Black Lives Matter. In 2018, he wrote this, even when its proponents believe themselves to be radicals, this anti-racist politics is a professional managerial class politics. Its adherents are not concerned with trying to generate the large, broad political base needed to pursue a transformative agenda because they are committed fundamentally to pursuit of racial parity within neoliberalism, not social transformation. Now, Reed himself is an African-American leftist who was really, um, it was shockingly deplatformed this spring from the DSA, the Democrat, so Democratic Socialists of America uh, conferences in Philadelphia and New York because he pushed back on a rather racist assertion, I have to say, being made within the left that COVID-19 is far worse for black Americans because of race, despite any, any scientific evidence. Uh, Reed went on to write a piece for Common Dreams about this, was unceremoniously deplatformed from these events. And it seems to me from everything that just this, these incidents with Reed and others, yeah, it's gone on. People like Glenn Lowry are also called horrible names for making critiques about Black Lives Matter. The idea mm. is if you're black, you think like us. And if not, then you either a white racist or you're a, a horrible name to call someone, but an Uncle Tom referring to, mm. you mm. know, the, the play from the 19th century. Now, it seems pretty clear to me that and to many people on the left uh, who are watching this with their, you know, our, our jaws dropping, that racism is making a fierce comeback within the left. And few are pointing this out. In fact, it's almost like the same reversal of trans women are women. And if you don't say this, then you're a transphobe. So mm. Black Lives Matter has done very little, if anything, to improve the lives of working class people, especially working class black people, as they ostensibly you know, are claimed to represent. And they have uh, also, however, have emboldened several groups to make a load of money for the wealthy black members of those organizations. So there's an, a complete abandon of class, which is shocking, as is the fact that no major media that I know has been critical at all about some of the alliances between these groups and some rather right-wing undertakings. You know, one of the leaders of Black Lives Matter or the, the, the form, formers of the organization has links to a think tank, which is in bed with the Department of Defense, for instance. Um, and, and one can even look at who Biden is currently choosing to fill his cabinet. Um, again, he's making all the woke points happen by getting women and he's being pushed for more diversity. Wait a sec, his diversity is including the top 
tier elements of big tech and big tech in bed with defense department contractors, right? So, you know, one has to wonder what is, what is going on when the left is now, not only, you know, trans women are women, but now we're, we're looking at a racialized politics that's being sold as the opposite of what it is. I mean, Black Lives Matter in many respects is promoting racism. Well, I, I make the point that I, I believe fundamentally in Black Lives Matter, lowercase BLM, um, mm -hmm. but I have real issues with Black Lives Matter, uppercase BLM trademark. Um, I think the, the two things are fundamentally different. You can support the principle um, and, you know, frankly, all decent people, I'm sure, would support the, the principle that black lives do indeed matter without necessarily supporting the organisation or its tactics or its methods or, or some of its overarching philosophy, which seems to call for the defunding of the police and the abolition of the, the nuclear family, etc. Um, and I certainly think that much of what black lives matter as a movement, as an organization have done in this country has um, divided more than united. Uh, and there was a report in the, the Guardian newspaper here uh, a couple of days ago, which showed that a majority of, uh, of people in the country, 55% of people in the country, uh, agreed that Black Lives Matter had been divisive um, and, and that actually had set back race relations and the relationship between black and white. And the really interesting thing about that survey, by the way, is that 44% of ethnic minorities themselves also believe that. They also believed that Black Lives Matter, it's nearly half of ethnic minorities believe that Black Lives Matter as an organisation uh, had been divisive. And there is this attempt by so many people um, particularly on the left, to, to, to try to give the impression that, you know, ethnic minority people are some sort of homogenous slab. You know, they, they all have a uniform opinion on these things. And when it comes to Black Lives Matter, they are all completely supportive of it. And that's why we should be supportive of it. Or, you know, going back to the Brexit vote, uh, there was this view that all ethnic minorities were, were against Brexit because of the, you know, what they saw as the damaging impacts it would have on them. But actually, you know, the data showed that a third of black and minority ethnic voters uh, voted leave in that referendum, including... Uh, many places such as Slough and Bradford, towns in, in England where there are a higher minority ethnic um, populations. Um, and, and it's simply, you know, not true that, that, that they are this uniform block who, who have the same view. And we shouldn't allow people to get away with invoking them on their side in, in debate in this way. Um, and, you know, to, so, so there's this kind of mainstream opinion among ordinary people across the country that Black Lives Matter as an organisation, um, some of its tactics and methods have, have been divisive. But if you try to say that in the public sphere, and particularly if you're in any sort of position of influence, um, then you will be absolutely hammered. And for example, we saw, um, we saw uh, over the weekend uh, a football match taking place in this country between Millwall and Derby County in the, in the Football League. And every professional football club in this country uh, for several months now, um, their players will 
take the knee um, before the before the match starts. Um, and because of COVID, most of these games have been played behind closed doors. In fact, all of them until the weekend had been had been played behind closed doors. And I think there was a general kind of belief among some people that you know this this taking the knee and this support for Black Lives Matter as a movement. Um, may not be well received by by the fans of these teams when they're allowed back into the, the stadium. And sure enough, uh, I understand that three of the games, but only one of them was actually reported. Um, there was there was booing that took place when players were taking the knee. And of course, the the media reaction and the the reaction of the kind of liberal establishment and, and commentariat in this country was ferocious. You know, these football fans were demonised as as racist and Neanderthals and and you know. Their, 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 their decision to boo could only have been born from some belief that anti-racism is wrong. And in fact, you know, the, the truth, as far as I see it, is that this was to a certain degree inevitable because what began, and I tweeted this, what began as a single act of solidarity in terms of taking the knee has, as it usually does, turned into a protracted moral lecture um, where people... Uh, constantly being told you have to do more to fight racism and in some cases you know you might be guilty of it yourself because you've got white privilege and I just think you have to take people with you on these debates you know I absolutely believe in the cause of fighting racism but you do it in a way um, that builds the broadest possible support you don't do it by constantly lecturing people you don't do it by you know, doing these things before every single football match to a point where I think it becomes, frankly, tedious and people just feel that they're being hectored all the time. Um, and largely, I think in many cases as well, you know, these corporations, including football clubs, including supermarkets and these other big corporations, do it to flaunt their woke credentials. You know, they don't do it really from any position of principle. The minute their profits are threatened, they take a different view. And there was a really good example recently um, of an Arsenal, I mean, many Premier League clubs have, have got interests with China. Um, and uh, there was a recent example where an Arsenal footballer, Meza Ozil, uh, spoke out against China's treatment of the Uyghur Muslims. Um, and, you know, perfectly right to, to do so. And Arsenal Football Club uh, immediately released a statement saying that this is the players' own personal views. We as a club do not get involved in politics because, of course, they were worried that his statement had threatened their commercial interests in China. Uh, and you see from that small example exactly what it really means to these big corporations. They couldn't really care less about whether or not they're advancing the fight for social justice. What they do care about is being seen to be doing the correct thing in the eyes of the kind of woke and, and the, the liberal and cultural elites in this country. But the minute those that their own commercial interests are threatened, all of a sudden they'll step back and say, well, this particular cause isn't for us. Um, and, and, you know, again, it, it shows the chasm between the between the the ideology of the of the elites and the chattering classes uh, and the, uh, the the views of ordinary working class people the vast majority of people in this country in my view are anti-racist the vast majority of people wouldn't argue for a minute that white lives are more valuable than black lives but they do object to being constantly morally lectured and told to check themselves and told to check their white privilege and that kind of thing um, and, and Millwall fans for, for booing were absolutely hammered and they weren't booing 
anti-racism. They weren't booing black players on the pitch. They were booing the fact that they don't like this protracted moral lecture where they're told that, you know, they somehow are responsible and they need to, um, they need to expunge themselves of their sins. Uh, and this stuff will happen, start happening more and more, I'm sure of it. You're listening to Savage Minds. We hope you're enjoying the show. Please consider subscribing. We depend on listeners and readers just like you. Now, back to our show. Well, it seems that there's been a replacement of religion over the past four decades with a kind of, of political moralism. And I, I see people pushing back on that and mostly unsuccessfully uh, because of the way that, you know, what's called wokeism functions is there's always someone there to correct you. Now, this has become part of the class dynamics we've been discussing because it's always going to be the educated elite classes that are there to say, did you just presume my pronouns? You know, you didn't ask me my pronouns. What's your pronoun, Paul? And you know, I, at one point on my Twitter handle, I don't have it anymore. I think I had, you know, Her Royal Highness or, you know, His Royal Majesty or whatnot. I mean, to what degree are we insisting on the wrong thing so perversely? Like, it's, it's quite apparent to most people. Like, if I was a, a Martian coming to Earth, I'd be like, what the heck's going on here? Yet, we've, it's successfully caught up so many people, you know. Uh, all these identitarian politics have supplanted the most basic concerns for how we're going to eat, pay rent. And this virus, I thought, would be the nail in the coffin for these kinds of politics. I was hoping it was going to be. It started to be. We saw a lot less of trans everything in April, May. Uh, there was an article that came out in the uh, what's that Canadian the publication vice. And it was about how someone was mis mispronounced, mislabeled during some kind of medical procedure. And that got like zero likes. Of course, people are dying. So, you know, what really shocks me is that during all of these lockdowns and semi lockdowns is this complete dismissal of who's going to pay rent like all the governments from Italy's to the UK's to the US's there's been little concern for renters Italy only recently in the last six weeks brought in some measures to help renters uh, in the US forget it and in the UK there was a moratorium on evictions but we're really we've lost the plot on the left when MPs aren't arguing for even forgiveness of rent. You know what I mean? Mm, mm. <laughs> we're, we're worried about uh, how you identify. And, and COVID has had a real knock on effect. Um, I'll give you an example. I interviewed one of the scientists who's pushed back on virus mitigation efforts. Jay Bhattacharya, professor of medicine at Stanford and a research associate at the National Bureau of Economics Research. And he's been outspoken about the failures of government to have any sort of class consciousness in this virus mitigation. He hmm. said that the working class has been sacrificed this year for the wealthy. And I'm struck by this since it's been largely 
the left in the UK, in Italy, the US and elsewhere, which has taken up the mantle for arrogating our civil liberties, all with the assumption that the key workers and the frontline workers can bite the bullet for the rest of us, right? Uh, mm -hmm. I'll order up Deliveroo, Paul. <laughs> what would you like? And then we're doing our part. And I call this lockdown by proxy because, you know, I can lock down if I've got the money to pay some uh, worker who's likely being underpaid to bring me my food. And I find this incredibly arrogant on the one hand, authoritarian on the other, and then, you know, with a sprinkling of entitlement. How has this gone down in recent weeks since the UK has been under a second lockdown? Well, I think the... I think the lockdown impacts in Britain is is not known. And when it becomes apparent, I think we are going to be pretty shocked at, at you know, how we will have devastated our economy, how that is going to impact on entire industries and people's jobs and people's livelihoods. Um, I think it's fund fundamentally altered the, the nature of our relations with each other uh, and we are seeing almost daily stories in the media about another big company closing um, in no small part because of lockdown and the impacts of thousands of jobs going and you know the, the the wider impact in terms of their suppliers and and the people who are working there and, and their communities etc and the truth is that you know, I, I don't deny for a second COVID is real for a, a, a small number of people. It's it's unpleasant for the vast majority of people. The symptoms are either mild or, or they're asymptomatic. And for a small minority of people, the the symptoms are unpleasant. For a smaller minority, um, they're, they're fatal. Um, but the truth is that the, the virus does not present a serious threat to the overwhelming majority of people in this country but it's almost like we've treated it as another black death and we've put in place the kind of rigorous measures that you might do if we were if we were faced with another black death and I, I did some I follow the figures that are released by NHS England National Health Service England um, they release their figures each week and since the beginning of the pandemic the number of people in England who have died uh, with COVID, because obviously with COVID or from COVID are two different things. The number of people mm -hmm. who have died with COVID under the age of 60 and with no pre-existing condition, at the last count, I think it was about 330 or something like that. Now, you know, undoubtedly a tragedy for all of those people. But, you know, my view, the idea that we should have locked down the entire country with these blanket lockdowns, um, quarantining millions and millions of, of healthy people, um, I'm just really uncomfortable with it. And I think that in the end, we're going to pay a huge price for it. And I'm not suggesting for a minute that we should expose the vulnerable or we shouldn't take care of the vulnerable. On the contrary, I think we should have done much more to protect the vulnerable, such as people in care homes, than we, than we did. And I'm all in favour of targeting all the resources of, of the state and civil society at making sure that those people who really are uh, a genuine threat from COVID are, are, properly, are properly protected. Um, so I, I've been really uncomfortable with the whole thing. And the, you know, the truth is that it does impact on the working class more. The working class are 
less likely to be able to work from home, for example, than the middle class. The middle class are much more likely to work in the professional occupations in white collar uh, industries where they can, you know, they can just fire up their laptop in the morning and, and get on with the day's work. The working class are much more likely to be involved with, you know, manual labor um, or, you know, working in a working in a factory, blue collar industries, and and you know, it's not as I'll, I'll be on the the front line in public services, and it's just not as easy for for working class people to work from home. I think the you know the impacts on working class kids of the of the schools being closed earlier in the year, I think is going to be be significant. But again, the the interesting thing on that even is that there's been no real openness about the debate in this country. I mean, there are many, many people, I think, who are uncomfortable with the, the, the whole um, blanket lockdown approach, including eminent scientists who have made the case for a more targeted approach, but they have to fight tooth and nail um, to get any sort of space in the, in the media. Um, you know, if, if anyone expresses uh, an alternative view on this. I mean, you know, the likes of, of social media, big tech companies are likely to flag up the uh, the opinion as fake news or the BBC, you know, won't broadcast it. You, you've seen a complete lack of uh, diversity of opinion on this issue on the BBC. And, and that itself, I think, is, is a sign of just how rigidly conformist we've become in in debate in this country uh and you know it's it's chilling because i i don't think we've scratched the surface surface of, of what this blanket lockdown approach is going to do to our country well no i think there's also a naivety amongst the left the same people we've been discussing who are educated elite it's brought out a kind of disconnect between when they like when we say this is hurting the economy they come back with arguments that make me think that they don't understand what economy means. They hear, you know, capitalism, the, the folks that say, I'm a, I'm a Marxist, you know, um, the kinds of people who are unable to understand that a four month lockdown in Italy won't have an effect for four months. It will have an effect for 10 years. And that is going to hurt um, local communities, it's going to hurt families, and it's going to hurt children. I mean, the lockdown's effect on education has been shocking. Even my own children, their behavior changed because of this. Uh, their ability to socialize has been affected. I mean, we're looking at severe depression. Uh, what information came from Japan nine days ago about the suicide rates in October exceeding all deaths from coronavirus in the country. These are things that are not being examined. But the notion that people think four months of lockdown is going to mean four months of hardship is insane to me because that means that they're not understanding how economies work. Mm, and, and, you know, people, people will often say in discussions that that I have, well, you know, you shouldn't put the economy before um, people's lives. But but you know, the, the two things are interlinked. Um, you know, the, the, the truth is that if you if you tank the economy, which is pretty much what we've done, um, then whether you like it or not, the, 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 the truth is that in time, we will see what that means in terms of our ability to be able to, to fund the National Health Service, for example. If we've got millions of people unemployed, and we're not taking in tax revenues, and we are paying out lots of money in unemployment benefits, uh, and we're not receiving the money in order to be able to fund 
public services such as the health service what is that going to mean for for people's well-being in the future what has it meant for you know for people's mental health what has it meant for um, people who haven't been able to have cancer operations or get their cancer screening done what is it going to mean for rates of cardiovascular disease because people have been have been locked down um, you know these are these are real life concerns and simply saying you know well don't worry about the economy this is about people's lives is to suggest that you know the the functioning of the economy and the success of the economy um, has no impact on those things so you know there, there is I, I, I suspect we're not going to know the full price of it until until some years to come when we look back and uh, and we understand that the approach that we took um, was too radical and too extreme and we we like many like many things of this kind the bill only lands some years after the event uh, and I think also we've got a government which is largely driven by the 24-hour news agenda. So, you know, they're, they're desperately hoping um, that no negative stories will, you know, come up. And, and therefore, they, you know, instead of planning for the long-term approach, they, they, they're planning in a very short-term way. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's disturbing. The whole thing, I think, has been really disturbing. Well, there's a politics of fear driving this, clearly. But I do find it phenomenal that it's the left in many places. Now, in Sweden, the left has been more against lockdown. But in the UK and the US, it's been more pro-lockdown. And it's been glamorized. You had Nancy Pelosi famously standing in front of her, got $25,000 refrigerator eating a $7 ice cream uh, in a cup. It was an individual piece <laughs> and that didn't touch voters. Um, I think had Trump not handled uh, things so badly with the virus the last months, he might've won the election just on class itself. But I'm, I'm pretty shocked to see how we're unable to have a discussion across political boundaries without pe people being labeled as racist, such as, again, the, I've been a lifelong immigrant to so many countries. I've been without reservation embraced in the countries where I've lived, to include your own. And I'm struck by how Brexit and anything related to immigration has so polarized the parties in the UK as it has done in France and Canada, et cetera, as, as immigration. It's just, it's shocking to me how immigration um, has been used to split the left in a sense, the working class from the intellectual left. And I've, I was really struck by that chapter in your book where you, you say we need to talk about immigration. What are some of the problems within the left's position on immigration? And what do you see as a way out of this conundrum between the elite leftists who like their cheap immigrant labor, although they, you know, they won't say that, and the needs of the working class whose lives are necessarily pitted against new immigrants, such as your experience from hmm. what you witnessed living in, in Dagenham at the Ford plant and other places around the country that echo the same experience? Well, fundamentally, the problem is that the left now has embraced a position in favour of open borders, which until relatively recently was very much a fringe position on the left, um, which was, you know, kind of held only really by, by Trotskyists, anarchists and, and radical liberals, the, 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 the majority of the mainstream left, whilst being 
pro-immigration, which I am, uh, also believed in regulation of the labour supply because they understood that the labour supply was a market dynamic, which, like all market dynamics, needed to be regulated so as to, to provide the best outcome for workers. And if you were if you were a government and your job was to plan around things like employment and housing and welfare and all of those things, then you needed to know, you know, from year to year how many people were were coming into your your country so so it's been it's been eye-opening to see that position a perfectly mainstream sensible position of belief in the the regulation of the labor supply become a fringe position on the left in recent years and, and not only become a fringe position um, but those who still espouse it uh, be demonized as bigots and xenophobes and anti-migrant and all of this sort of stuff but the I mean, the other point is that it just hasn't benefited people. You know, I, I believe in I believe in immigration, but you know, I don't believe in unregulated uh, immigration, which ultimately really is a is a boss's dream because it gives bosses the right, as we've seen with EU free movement laws, to shunt workers from low wage economies such as those in Eastern Europe to high wage economies such as the the UK. Um, and to, to save on labour costs in doing so. It's almost like a form of outsourcing in reverse, where once upon a time, you know, they would move their production abroad in order to save on labour costs. Now free movement laws give them the, the, the right to do that. Um, and, you know, the impact that that has had in particular, I mean, the, the, you know, broadly speaking, uh, the impact of, of immigration on wages in Britain uh, is broadly negligible, but when you drill down into the detail of it, you see that it does have a, an effect on wage distribution. It does have a greater impact on people at the on people at the lower end of the scale. Um, but also, you know, the, the, you have to look at the countries from where large numbers of people are coming and the impact on those countries as well. There was a report in the Guardian, which I refer to in the book um, in Romania the health service is in crisis because of the, the the number of doctors that have moved elsewhere in the EU since since that country's accession to the EU Latvia another uh, country has suffered a depopulation crisis since its accession to the to the EU um, now that's all of that that kind of economic uh, side of it is aside from the the social and cultural aspects of it which as I detail in a chapter of the book my experiences in Barking and Dagenham working class part of London in the in the first decade of this century um, and the very significant impact of immigration there the non-UK uh, the number of non-UK born residents in the borough surged by something like 205 percent in that decade uh, the number of white British people in the borough fell from 81% to 49%, which was the largest drop of any uh, local authority in England and Wales. That threw up, um, you know, that threw up real cultural and, and, and social challenges um, where people just felt that their, you know, everything that they'd known was suddenly altering very, very fast around them economically and demographically, etc. Uh, and these people were often dismissed as racists and bigots, whereas in fact, what it was is a, it was a sense of bewilderment and disorientation. Uh, and the sad thing is, I think that the whole debate now has been poisoned because of because of the way in which the liberal and cultural elites in this country tried to force this on people against their will and tried to preach at them about how it was really to their benefit when plainly it wasn't. 
um, the whole debate became poisoned and, and it's sad because we were going in the right direction. We had made huge strides in terms of race relations and immigration and the vast majority of people in this country were, I think still are actually pro-immigration, but because because it was unregulated and because the, the the kind of elites just told people well this is how the world now works get on with it um we've taken a huge backward step and and the debate has become toxic and the people responsible for it really need to, to face up to the consequences of what they did i don't know if you've read how the world works by paul cockshan i haven't no okay he has a great um it's well worth the read, but he says at one point that the net result of rapid immigration is to raise the rate of exploitation. And he points to the UK between 1970 and 2008, he says there was a 75% correlation between the rate of exploitation and the level of inward migration. Statistically, this means 75% of changes in exploitation can be explained by changes in immigration, where he contends that a high rate of immigration tends to produce higher exploitation. And I find this interesting because as someone myself who's lived in many countries, it's, it's very clear. You see where if you go to Singapore, the exploited class will be the Tamils from Southeast India. And anywhere you go, you'll see who's exploited. Um, and this is something that played into the dealings of NAFTA, where when I was doing a lot of work, because I come from, an, um, <laughs> I did a lot of cultural anthropology in Central and South America. And it, when the, the, the factories were, you know, producing for the U.S. and Mexico, but when the labor there became too much, they shifted downward towards Guatemala, Honduras, mm etc. And you could see how that line would shift and shift and shift further south uh, because workers would either start to demand higher wages and uh, yeah, you can underpay Guatemalans more than you can Mexicans at a certain point in time. And mm -hmm. it was very uh, shocking to see how the labor unions in the U.S., which had been, as you probably know, you know, since the post-war era, McCarthyism, there was a huge uh, snuffing out of their powers. Some retained an incredible amount of, of strength uh, compared to their U.K. counterparts. For instance, when I joined the EUCU, the Union for College Professors in the yes. U.K., mm. I was really shocked when I was dealing with something with the University of Liverpool's campus in China, I learned that the University of Liverpool cleverly marginalized us so that we couldn't have any power because we were in China. And then the UCU told me outright, well, we're not like the labor unions that you have in the States where you would in fact have more power, which shocked me because as an American, I presumed the British institutions and unions would have far more. That wasn't the case. And I notice how with the encroachment of technology, of these labor deals, uh, the more recent deal between Canada and the UK, uh, the, some of the similar trade deals happening with the Asian Pacific and Australia, how laborers, workers are sort of, I mean, you say it's a dirty word on the one hand, yes, but we're also seeing what you refer to in your book as this going backwards on productivity. And you use the example of how hand car washes um, uh, are being 
now taken up and fruit picking industry as well are mm. becoming these places of low wages uh, where the there's a discouragement of investment in technological advances. Can you speak mm. to that? Yeah, that, that's, that's exactly what's been happening. It, it's, it's become easier, I think, for many companies just to, just to pay a worker a low wage to do the work rather than investing in new technology or, or paying higher wages. And, and of course, all of that um, has an impact on, on productivity and technological advancement, etc. Um, and in fact, Paul Mason, who I cite in the book, uh, and he's a supporter of free movement, he writes in The Guardian and elsewhere, who, who mentioned about the, the hand car washes, you know, 10, 15 years ago, uh, it would be a, a machine. And, you know, these machines are developed over the years uh, to do the work that previously uh, you know, three or four men have done. And now, you know, you, you, we're going back because people are willing to pay Eastern European workers such low wages to do the job. Why invest on, in developing that technology? Uh, let's just go back to, to kind of doing it how we, how we were doing it because it's so cheap. And interestingly, Bernie Sanders, who's a darling, obviously, to many people on the left, um, has made this very point. He says that open borders is a right-wing policy which would benefit big business if, if if you had open borders in the united states big business would bring a whole lot of people in and pay them two pounds an hour um and yeah i think he he gets it the you often meet arguments from from people on the left who will who will say yeah we should have open borders and the way to address that is to for example increase the minimum wage or do you know, better trade union organization. That's, that's the way to stop exploitation. But the truth is that better regulation only takes you so far. You know, the, 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 more, the, more, the greater the supply of labor available to an employer, the less pressure he or she is under to pay decent wages. I mean, that, that is simply an, an iron law. And to try to deny that, I think is just silly. And, you know, the point about raising the minimum wage, well, yes, of course, raise the minimum wage. I'd support that. But the truth is that most people are earning above the minimum wage anyway. So, you know, raising it is not necessarily going to help those people. Yet some of those people still suffer in some industries, industries from downward pressure on their wages uh, as a result of uh, an oversupply of labor. And the truth is, as you, as you touched on in terms of the exploitation point, um, it's often migrants themselves, because they're on low wages and in precarious employment, it's often migrants themselves here uh, who, whose wages are more likely to, to suffer because they're at the poorer end of the scale. Um, so, you know, people, before they start arguing for open borders, really need to think about who it is they're, they're trying to benefit because by and large, uh, a policy of open borders does not, aid working class people um, in, you know, skilled or in semi-skilled or unskilled jobs rather, um, or working in precarious employment, they are often the people who take the, who take the biggest hit. And, you know, we need to get back to a position on the left where arguing for control of the labor, being pro-immigration, yes, challenging prejudice, absolutely, but arguing for control of the labor supply uh, as a straightforward and sensible policy of regulating a market dynamic in the way that we would regulate all other market dynamics. That seems to me to be a perfectly sensible position. It was once upon a time the mainstream position on the left, but, you know, frankly, now is a, is a fringe position. And I think that shows how far the left has moved away from the priorities of, of working people. And can you explain to audiences outside of the UK what Blue Labour is? 
Um, someone once said that Blue Labour was socialism with a small c, <laughs> which, uh, <laughs> if you get the meaning, um, which I think is quite a, quite a good way of describing it. Um, so it, it, you know, it, it believes in, uh, in challenging um, unfettered markets. It believes in democratic resistance to the, to the power of capital. It believes that workers should organise through their own institutions um, to advance their interests. Uh, it believes in, in you know, relationships being at the centre of society. It doesn't believe in an unfettered market on the one hand, nor an overbearing kind of impersonal state on the, on the other hand. And it's very much part of the early Labour tr tradition, um, which, you know, needs to see uh, a revitalisation, I think, um, because without it, uh, I think the Labour Party is potentially finished as a, as a serious force in politics in Britain. Thank you.